Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 93, Review of Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, Part 1. This is a different kind of episode in the Trinity's podcast. I haven't done this before. This episode and the next episode will be a two-part review and reaction to this very interesting book. The full title of the book is Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus, A Devout Muslim Encounters Christianity. And it's written by Mr. Nabil Qureshi. He holds a medical MD from Eastern Virginia Medical School, an MA in Christian Apologetics from Biola University, and an MA in Religion from Duke University. So he's a smart guy. He has three graduate degrees, and he's working on his fourth, his PhD. He's currently a PhD student in New Testament with a focus on the Gospels. He also is a very active speaker right now with Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. The first thing I want to say about this book is that you should read it. If you have any interest in Christianity and or in Islam, you should read this book. If you're a Christian, you're going to learn a ton about Islam from this book. If you're a Muslim, you're going to find this a challenging book. Somebody who has left your religion and embraced Christianity, and to his own satisfaction at least, has answered all the objections that many Muslims and Muslim apologists think are devastating to Christianity. If you're a seeker, an agnostic, you're going to find this very interesting to compare the two traditions and find why this fellow picked one over the other. If you're an atheist, I'll be honest, you're going to find some ammunition here against both. This is a good book for many reasons. It's just about the right length. It's well-written. It's personal. It's engaging. It's gripping. You won't be able to put it down. And the book is bold. While he's a Muslim and he's confronted with Christian claims, he's bold in investigating them and arguing about them. He's bold in following up and reading the sources for himself. He's bold in ultimately converting at great personal cost. And he's bold in writing a book like this. It's part of many Islamic legal traditions that apostates from Islam should be killed. They mandate the death penalty for that. There are a lot of Muslims in the world, of course, by no means all of them, or even most of them, who would like to see him die for his apostasy. In this book, Mr. Qureshi and his family, and indeed his whole religious community, come across as normal, likable human beings. In fact, clean living and God-fearing people. His family is close-knit and truly loves him, and he loves them. And you'll just about want to cry when you read his parents' reaction to his conversion, and when you read about the effect of this on him, he rips their hearts out, and this rips his heart out, and you'll have to read the book to see how he came to a sense of peace about that. So, this is exciting stuff. Think about it. When was the last time that you had to contemplate a decision that would break the hearts of the people who are closest to you? When was the last time you decided to speak publicly to publish a book about something that might get you killed? And it's not that Mr. Qureshi is crazy. It's not that he doesn't have any fear. He has plenty of fears. He's completely normal. It's just that he doesn't let those fears stop him from pursuing the truth. When you pursue certain truths, some people 
don't like it. Mr. Qureshi comes from an Urdu-speaking Pakistani Ahmadiyya Muslim family. So Pakistan, you know, used to be part of Greater India, and it was made a separate country in 1947. It was divided up by the Brits before they left India and the whole area. Urdu is a language that's very similar to Hindi, but it's written in a different script. This is the predominant language in Pakistan. The fact that he's an Ahmadiyya Muslim is unusual, and we'll talk about that and why that's a complication in just a minute. But the story is that his father works for the U.S. Navy, and Mr. Qureshi grows up in Scotland and then in a couple places on the east coast of the U.S. And he never really fits in. He's always the outsider. People don't know what to make of him. He's the brown guy from the religion that we don't understand. And so people are standoffish. Of course, growing up in Western societies, he then is kind of culturally alienated from the rest of his family, those people who are more traditional and people who live back in the home country. And they experience the aftermath of the famous 9-11 terrorist attacks. All of a sudden, everybody in America is concerned about Islam for the first time and doesn't know what to make of Muslims and is rather paranoid about there being more such attacks. As I mentioned before, if you're a Christian, you're going to learn a lot from this book about Islam and about your Muslim neighbors. For more than two-thirds of the book, maybe three-quarters of the book, he's describing the period when he was a Muslim. And of course, he was raised that way. Along the way, he explains several dozen Islamic terms, and he explains how Muslims think about God, what they think about the Quran, and what they think about the man whom they consider to be the last and greatest prophet. He also explains why they don't think that Jesus died from crucifixion, what they think about the Bible, and why they think that the Trinity is thinly veiled polytheism. He even explains how their apologists approach Christianity. And this part will save you from watching 100 videos by Dr. Zakir Naik and Ahmad Didat, although I have to say the Didat videos uh, have their own special charm. He's quite a character. Naik is just kind of a memorizing robot who uses DDOT's arguments, but in any case, like many an intelligent and thoughtful and religiously serious young man, when Mr. Qureshi came of age and found out there were lots of religions in the world, he wanted to defend his own belief. And so he practiced Islamic apologetics. He read some of the books and pamphlets and studied some of those sources, and he tried out some of these standard arguments on his Christian friends and fellow students. Now, there is a complication in the story, which, to be blunt, Mr. Qureshi and his family were Muslim heretics. They were from what's called the Ahmadiyya sect, and many mainstream, that is, Sunni Muslims, do not consider them to be Muslims, but to be rather kafir, infidels, or unbelievers. This sect was founded by a guy named Mizra Ghulam Ahmad, who lived from 1835 to 1908. And by the way, I don't stand by my pronunciation of his name. 
This guy was a Muslim from the Punjab region of India, and he claimed to be another, uh, although lesser, great prophet after Muhammad. Also, strangely, he claimed to be the promised Messiah and the Mahdi. The Mahdi in Islam is kind of an end times special uh, divinely sent teacher who is supposed to uh, reform religion. And he was literally saying that he was the second coming of Christ. Not only that, but in some sense, he counted as the return of the Hindu god or avatar Krishna. And the idea was that Krishna was actually not a god or an avatar, but was rather a prophet. And he was supposed to come back. Okay, but now Krishna's back too. It's this guy. And also the Buddha. And he taught that his ministry was in some way a continuation of Muhammad's ministry. He's also famous or notorious for his teaching that Jesus actually survived the cross. He was okay. He recovered. And he ended up living out his days in the Kashmir region of India. So, Misra Ghulam Ahmad was a bizarre character making bizarre claims. Bizarre to anybody, but especially bizarre to a mainstream Muslim. But he always emphasized that he professed the basic truths that make a person a Muslim. And Mr. Qureshi, for his part, agrees. On page 57 of his book, he says, quote, But to me, many things weigh in favor of Ahmadis being Muslims. Ahmadis adhere to the central doctrines and practices of Islam. Based on their daily lives and applied beliefs, Ahmadis are virtually indistinguishable from Sunnis. Along a similar vein, when I was an Ahmadi, I saw myself tied to Islam far more than Ahmadiyat. That is, the Ahmadiyya movement. But perhaps most important, Muhammad himself would consider Ahmadis Muslim, quote, do not excommunicate anyone who declares that there is no God but Allah, end quote, and end quote. The case is kind of like Mormonism and mainstream Christianity. Mormons think they're Christians. In fact, they're the best kind of Christians. All the other churches have gone astray and they have this special prophet who has basically corrected the Christian movement, brought it back to a state of purity and even to a better state than it was before. That's Joseph Smith. That's the Mormon view, but most mainstream Christians are like, yeah, those aren't Christians. That's another religion. Granted, it's a religion that branched off from Christianity, but it is a different religion. One issue is whether or not Mormons affirm all of what are considered the essential teachings of Christianity, But another matter is that in the view of most Christians, Joseph Smith was a false prophet and not a true prophet. And so in following that false prophet, you are following somebody other than the Lord Jesus. You've aligned yourself with something that God did not initiate. Similarly, Sunni or mainstream Muslims sometimes argue that Misra Ghulam Ahmad was not a true prophet. They say that his behavior was bad, that he made false prophecies, that he committed the sin of shirk, and Muhammad said that no prophet would commit that specific sin. In any case, this is a complication. Some Muslims will read the book and they will say that, oh, this guy was never a real Muslim. He was always a heretic. He was in this Ahmadiyya movement. I completely understand Mr. Qureshi's point that, look, most of the doctrines are the same. Most of the central doctrines are the same. Arguably, most of the central practices are the same. In any case, this is just a complication. Another interesting thing about the book is that it's a story of spiritual friendships. Mr. Qureshi makes the acquaintance of a number of well-known evangelical American apologists, people like Dr. Gary Habermas, Dr. Michael Lycona, and others. And 
One central feature of the book, which makes it more interesting, is he talks about his at the time best friend, who we now know as Dr. David Wood. If you don't know who he is, he's about the bravest guy on YouTube. Dr. Wood uh, has a PhD in philosophy now, but is basically a full-time apologist, and he pulls no punches in making objections to Muhammad and to Islam, and uh, he defends evangelical Christianity against any and all Islamic objections. He's another bold guy. In fact, I don't know of any bolder. And while Mr. Qureshi is a Muslim who takes his faith very seriously and who studies apologetics in order to defend his faith and to argue against Christianity, David Wood is just as serious. And so you have two good friends, a serious Christian and a serious Muslim, and they have a lot of interesting conversations. And they really hammer on each other sometimes, even gun each other's nerves sometimes. This is a classic, you know, male friendship. In a way, it's a story of two men turning into spiritual brothers. When we come back, two ways I suggest that the title of the book could be more accurate. The book is called Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. And the way that your average American Christian reader is going to look at this is he's going to think that these are respectively the proper names of the Muslim God and of the Christian God. So the proper name of the Muslim God is Allah. The proper name of the Christian God is Jesus. Now this is wrong on both counts, but let me keep going. The way that a lot of evangelical Americans are going to read the title is that Mr. Qureshi was seeking an imaginary God or maybe a false God, which is to say a demon. And while he's seeking that imaginary God or false God, that's Allah, he manages to find the real God or maybe the real God finds him and that's Jesus. So he goes looking for one God who's not the true God and he finds the true God. Here's the interesting thing. As you get into this book, you realize this is not at all how the story goes. In fact, in Mr. Qureshi's view, when he was a Muslim, he was not dealing with a mere fiction. He wasn't praying to Elmer Fudd or Batman or Zeus. And he doesn't think that he was praying with a demon falsely masquerading as the one true God. No, in his view, he doesn't say this, but it's clear from what he says, he was dealing with the one true God. In fact, he was receiving divine guidance and receiving messages from God through dreams and visions. He prays to God while a Muslim and has those prayers answered. Towards the beginning of the book, he prays, quote, Please, God Almighty, tell me who you are, end quote. So a more accurate title of the book might be Seeking God by Following Muhammad, comma, finding God by following Jesus. And of course, he doesn't just find Jesus, he doesn't just become a Christian, he ends up becoming an apologist. He argues with apologists for years, and he becomes a Christian, he continues to study with evangelical American apologists, and now he is one. 
So another more accurate title could be from Islamic apologist to evangelical Christian apologist. Another way the title could be more accurate is in the subtitle. The actual subtitle is A Devout Muslim Encounters Christianity. Well, yes, but not just the Bible and not just any sort of Christianity and not Roman Catholic Christianity or Eastern Orthodox Christianity or even really traditional small c Catholic Christianity, but rather American evangelical apologetics. A more accurate subtitle would be a devout Ahmadiyya Muslim encounters American evangelical apologetics. Of course, he's wrestling with the Bible. Evangelicalism is focused on the Bible. In fact, in their view, they're the people who take the Bible seriously, and they, in their own minds, are basing everything on the Bible and don't have any extra-biblical traditions coming in there and messing stuff up and causing confusion. Well, I grew up in this. I wish it were so. But I digress. When the encounter happens, what results? Mr. Qureshi finds that he can't sustain his belief that Jesus was not crucified. It turns out that this is something that historians just flat agree on. Historians, whether they're atheist or agnostic or from whatever religion, they just say, well, look, this is a really well-attested ancient fact. He learns from Dr. Michael Lycona that a very powerful case can be made that Jesus was, in fact, raised from the dead. Like Dr. Gary Habermas says in the book on page 159, quote, If the resurrection happened, we have good reason to believe that God approves of Jesus. End quote. He even manages to reconcile himself to the idea of God as a trinity, and somehow he thinks that this is consistent with thinking of Jesus as God himself. More about that in next week's episode. When he decides to have a closer look now that he's an adult, now that he's clashing with his Christian friends, when he decides that it's time for a closer look at his assumptions about Islam and about Muhammad, he's shocked by what he finds recorded in the Hadith, in the oral reports about Muhammad's life, and also in the earliest biography of Muhammad. The unfiltered view that he gets by reading these sources for himself is shockingly different than what he's been told. A little while ago, I was comparing Ahmadiyya Islam to Mormonism in relation to Christianity. But Islam in general has another thing in common with Mormonism, and it's this. Mormons are raised being told a very rosy picture about what kind of guy their prophet Joseph Smith was. Now, when you actually go back and read an unbiased history of what kind of person he was, it's pretty shocking. The classic book here is called No Man Knows My History, and it was written by a professional historian who was raised Mormon named Fawn Brody. I couldn't put that book down either. And it's not a polemic against Joseph Smith, but to be honest, just the bare facts of the case are really damning. Now you don't have to go and read a biography written by a historian. These embarrassing facts about Joseph Smith are all over the internet. And Mormonism now has a problem. They can't just pretend these facts aren't there, and there isn't really a good excuse for a lot of this behavior, and so this is causing people to leave Mormonism. Something similar is going on with Muhammad and his life. There's quite a lot recorded about him in these oral reports, and there are some things that are pretty unflattering. And now these things are all over the internet, all over YouTube. They're just unavoidable. They're not the province of scholars anymore. 
if I learn things about Jesus that are like what we've learned about Joseph Smith or Muhammad, if I learn those kinds of things about Jesus, I would quit being a Christian. I don't know what would happen to me. I don't know what I would be. I assume I would still believe in God. But I would say, no, this, this whole movement was started by a bad guy. This is just shaking me to the core. I can't trust this Jesus. The biggest enemy of Christianity as a movement is, and has, I think, always been, the behavior of Christians. The behavior of Christians to outsiders, the way that Christians have treated, for instance, Jews down through history, but also the way that Christians have viciously fought one another over, in some cases, very fine points of doctrine. The biggest enemy of Islam is, I would think, two things. The behavior of some Muslims, things like the ISIS movement, but also this unfiltered information about Muhammad. Now, the oral reports vary in how reliable they are. They were collected together a couple hundred years after Muhammad's death. And so you can always dismiss the ones that you don't like or discount them somewhat. It is well known that some of these sayings are inaccurate. Scholar Dr. Neil Robinson writes in his book, Islam, A Concise Introduction, quote, By the time Bukhari and Muslim compiled their collections, those are the two most esteemed hadith collections in Sunni Islam. By the time they compiled their collections, many spurious hadiths had come into circulation. Some were invented for political reasons, for instance, in support of the Umayyads or Abbasids, some out of malice by people who wished to discredit Islam, some for religious motives by Shiites, by believers in free will, or by ascetics who wished to encourage works of piety. Finally, there is evidence of people fabricating hadiths for financial gain. Storytellers who made a living by spinning good yarns, and merchants who boosted trade by alleging that the prophet loved pumpkins or whatever else they were trying to sell. The hadith collectors were well aware of this problem, so they and subsequent scholars developed the science of hadith criticism to help them separate the wheat from the chaff. This involved scrutinizing the isnads, the chains of transmission that go with each report. It was necessary to identify every person in a given chain and establish that he or she was orthodox, honest, and of sound memory. It was also necessary to ascertain when and where they all lived so as to verify that the first person could have been a pupil of the second, the second of the third, and so on. Hadiths with impeccable isnads were classified as sound. Others were deemed as fair, weak, or inauthentic, depending on the extent of the deficiencies. The criteria varied slightly from writer to writer, but the general principles were agreed. In the absence of a sound hadith, one which was fair would suffice to establish a point of law. Weak hadiths had no legal value, but could be used for exhortation, and inauthentic hadiths were to be rejected. The fabric of traditional Islamic societies owes even more to the hadith than it does to the Quran. The way in which Muslims in these societies pray, conduct business, wage war, marry and divorce, rear their children, dress, greet one another, eat and drink, or attend to matters of personal hygiene are all largely determined by what the Prophet is deemed to have said and done, or tacitly approved or disapproved. Much of this is learned indirectly simply by being born and bred in a Muslim society, but devout Muslims study hadiths so as to be better equipped to emulate their prophet in every aspect of their lives. End quote. So these problems we're talking about are not from the Quran, but they're from a very central source, a central source of Islamic practice in particular. 
But, you know, despite the judgments of the scholars as to the reliability of this saying or that saying, the door is always open in a person's mind to dismiss or at least to discount reports that one doesn't like. Well, maybe that really is among the unreliable ones. Someone made up for some reason or got distorted, hasn't been quite accurately reported. But Mr. Qureshi doesn't stop there. He goes on to consider the Quran itself. When Mr. Qureshi goes back and reconsiders the Quran, and he again looks at the old arguments for its divine origin, such that it's written in very beautiful Arabic, he finds these arguments to be pretty weak. And now he's a medical student, and some of the arguments the apologetic arguments that people nowadays give that the Quran miraculously contains all this medical information or biological information that couldn't have been known without supernatural help in the medieval world, he finds that these arguments just fall flat. When we come back, Mr. Qureshi's Theology and Christology. Do you enjoy listening to the Trinity's podcast? There are four ways you can show us some love in return. First, share the blog post for this episode on whatever social media you use, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Google+. Second, you can leave us a rating and a brief review in the iTunes Store and at Stitcher. For step-by-step directions on how to do this, visit trinities.org slash blog slash review. Doing this will help other people who are interested in theology to find this podcast. Third, you can donate to the cause by clicking the orange donate buttons to the right of any blog post. Do you think these episodes are worth a quarter apiece? If so, you can donate a dollar each month via PayPal. And of course, any one-time gift is much appreciated. Fourth, you can send us some brief, to-the-point audio feedback for possible incorporation into a future episode. We would love to hear your question or your comment in your voice. The upload link for your audio file is on the blog post for any episode. To sum up, you can share, rate, donate, and talk back. So in this part of the review, I want to talk about Mr. Qureshi's theology and Christology. The main thing I want to say about them is that they are a work in progress. And I hope he continues to think about these things and to develop his views and to develop his interpretations of the Bible. Again, this is a bold book. He tells you his actual reasoning. He tells you most of his thinking. And so it's all just lying there for you to examine. These are topics that I've been focusing on roughly since 1998 with a few interruptions. And... I'm going to be bold, too. I'm going to bluntly state some criticisms I have of what he claims. As the book says, the wounds of a friend are better than the kisses of an enemy. And I'm on his side. I think Christianity is true. I think Jesus is the Son of God. And I think he made the right choice in choosing to leave Islam, as painful as that was, and following Jesus. Now, about Jesus, what he usually says is that Jesus, quote, claimed to be God. Sometimes he describes Jesus as God incarnate. In other words, this is God himself, but in the flesh. Sometimes he uses the much more ambiguous phrase, deity of Jesus. And the alternative to this view that Jesus is God, that is, is God himself, the alternative is that he was just a man and that he never said he was God. 
I have three complaints about this. One is that this is a great oversimplification of small c Catholic tradition. It's a simplification that's common to evangelical apologists nowadays. What happened to the two natures of Christ? What happened to the hypostatic union of those two natures? What happened to Jesus being one usia with the Father and also with the Holy Spirit? What happened to the history of Christian doctrine and the disputes about quite how to understand his two natures? What about the Council of Chalcedon or Chalcedon? What about the Council of Constantinople? What about the communication of idioms, eternal generation and procession? You won't find any of these metaphysical agonies or cultural societal agonies in this book. It's just, look at the Bible. The Bible says Jesus is God. Well, I guess he's God unless he's just a man. Well, it's just not that simple. It never has been that simple. I've written a number of things on my blog, and I've published some things on early Christians like Justin and Tertullian and Origen, and they do not think that Jesus is God himself. That is, that Jesus is the one true God. They do think that Jesus is in some sense divine, but also that he is in various ways lesser than the one true God. He's not divine in the same way that the Father is. So one complaint is that it's an oversimplification. Another complaint is this. The central punchline of all the Gospels is not that Jesus is God. The emphasis of all those writers is that Jesus is God's Messiah, God's anointed. At the end of John, he tells you that he's written all these things so that you would come to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that is, the Son of God. And the high point in the Synoptic Gospels comes when Jesus asks the disciples if they're really getting it. Who do you guys think I am? And they say, the Messiah. This emphasis just completely drops out from the evangelical view. No, he's claiming to be God, or else the whole thing is just a big mistake. Okay, well, look at the early preaching in Acts. Listen to these words, fellow Israelites. Jesus of Nazareth was a man whose divine authority was clearly proven to you by all the miracles and wonders which God performed through him. And you yourselves know this, for it happened here among you. In accordance with his own plan, God had already decided that Jesus would be handed over to you, and you killed him by letting sinful men crucify him. But God raised him from death, setting him free from its power, because it was impossible that death should hold him prisoner. For David said about him, I saw the Lord before me at all times. He is near me, and I will not be troubled. And so I am filled with gladness, and my words are full of joy. And I, mortal though I am, will rest assured in hope, because you will not abandon me in the world of the dead. You will not allow your faithful servant to rot in the grave. You have shown me the paths that lead to life, and your presence will fill me with joy. My friends, I must speak to you plainly about our famous ancestor, King David. He died and was buried, and his grave is here with us to this very day. He was a prophet, and he knew what God had promised him. God had made a vow that he would make one of David's descendants a king, just as David was. David saw what God was going to do in the future, and so he spoke about the resurrection of the Messiah when he said, He was not abandoned in the world of the dead. His body did not rot in the grave. 
God has raised this very Jesus from death, and we are all witnesses to this fact. He has been raised to the right side of God, his Father, and has received from him the Holy Spirit as he had promised. What you see now and hear is his gift that he has poured out on us. For it was not David who went up into heaven. Rather, he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit here at my right side until I put your enemies as a footstool under your feet. All the people of Israel then are to know for sure that this Jesus whom you crucified is the one that God has made Lord and Messiah. Each one of you must turn away from your sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ so that your sins will be forgiven. Try to find the part there where Peter proclaims that Jesus is God himself, or even that Jesus is divine in the way that the Father is divine, or that he's fully divine, or that he has a divine nature. Did you catch that part of Peter's sermon? I didn't hear it either. That's because it's not there. What is there is believing that Jesus is God's Messiah, repenting and being baptized in his name. Apparently, Peter didn't understand the gospel. If it's a central part of the gospel, that you must believe that Jesus is God. Now, a third complaint is that, like some contemporary American evangelical apologists, he makes the mistake of thinking that the confession of Jesus is Lord is equivalent to claiming that Jesus is God, that is, that he's God himself, the one true God, Yahweh himself. It's a mistake to equate those. Lord becomes a title of Jesus, particularly after his resurrection. It neither means Sir, nor is it a substitute for Yahweh in the way that it is the Greek translation of the Bible. It's a kind of middle view, it's a kind of middle usage of the word Lord. You see this in the famous passage in 1 Corinthians 8 when Paul is discussing food sacrificed to idols. He says, there are many gods and lords to people out in other religions, but to us there's one God, the Father. Oh, and also there's one Lord, and this is kind of the second place, the second tier boss that we have. I discussed this in episodes 14, 15, and 16 of the Trinity's podcast. In any case, from the perspective of the New Testament, Jesus, who is a real man, has been raised to God's right hand and put in this position of authority and power and honor where he is our boss under God. This exaltation of Jesus is another thing that just falls out of the picture if you think that the whole point is that Jesus is just God all along, that he's God himself. Well, the exaltation isn't so shocking. It's just going back to where he was before, taking his rightful place. Another criticism of the book is that he's not concerned enough about consistency. I was really surprised that on page 92 of the book, he raises a whole bunch of consistency problems for believing that Jesus is both human and divine. And he never, in the course of the book, answers these questions. So I'm going to read you a little passage. He's arguing with a Christian classmate of his. This is, again, when he's still Muslim. And his classmate says, quote, Yes, I agree. Jesus is a man, and he is God, too. And then Mr. Qureshi says, quote, How can someone be man and God? Man is mortal. God is immortal. Man is limited. God is infinite. Man is weak. God is omnipotent. To be man is not to be God, and to be God is not to be man. This seemed to give her some pause. She was off balance, so I decided to push a bit harder. When Jesus went to Galilee, Mark's gospel tells us he could do no miracles. 
Not that he chose not to, but that he couldn't. Can God not do miracles? When a woman in the crowd touched him, he had no idea who it was. Would God not know something that simple? After pausing to let her process, I continued. When a man called him good, he said that he is not good, only God is good. He draws a distinction between himself and God. He does it again when he says he didn't know when the world will end and that only God knows. He's making it very clear that he is not God. Betsy said nothing. She had not thought of this before. I decided it was time for the coup de grace. Betsy, in case there is any question, in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, quote, The Father is greater than I, end quote, and I agree with Jesus. God is greater than he is. I think you ought to agree with him, too. Betsy didn't know what to say. I waited. Well, I don't know what to say. And so then she just proceeds to invite him to church. Well, there are at least five unanswered questions here. Jesus is mortal. God is, by his essence, immortal, incapable of death, whereas Jesus died. Jesus is not essentially omnipotent. There was a time when there was something he could not do, but God is essentially omnipotent. Jesus is not essentially omniscient because there was a time, the Gospels tell us, when he didn't know some things, whereas God is essentially omniscient. And Jesus talks about God like God is someone else. Right. In all four Gospels. Not only that, but in the Gospel of John, he calls the Father the one true God. And he says that the Father is his God and our God. We can throw those in there too. And then Jesus says in one place that the Father is greater than he is. Now what's the answer to all these objections? There isn't any answer in this book. Well, then why isn't it just straight against the New Testament to say that Jesus is God himself, or even to say that Jesus is fully divine, divine in the same way that the Father is divine? The problems are just left hanging. Now, biblical Unitarians like me will just say the answer is really simple. Jesus was mortal. He was not omnipotent. He was not omniscient. The Father is someone else. The Father is the one true God. The Father is Jesus' God and our God. And the Father is greater than Jesus. God, that is to say, is greater than the Son of God. It doesn't follow that Jesus is just a man, though. Jesus is the virgin-born Messiah, who's been raised from the dead by God and put in the highest position of honor by God. He's been given the name, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, above all names, so that everybody should worship him and it's all to the glory of God, the Father. Now, if your reaction is, okay, Tuggy, but you're one of those weirdos, one of those Unitarians, so-called biblical Unitarians, but Christians have always believed that Jesus was just as great as the Father, right? And that he was really omnipotent and omniscient, but in his divine nature, well, no. You can find mainstream, small-c, Catholic Christians writing in the 2nd and 3rd Christian centuries who say that the Father is greater than the Son, who say that the Son just flat did not know the day or hour of his return, and who are very clear in saying that the Father is Hathaos, the God, the one true God, whereas the Son is Theos, that is, a God or a divine being, but not the one true God. So it's not any kind of modern era innovation it's something that some Christians were saying since the beginning. 
Now, what about this two natures stuff? Does it make sense to see that Jesus is omnipotent in one nature and not omnipotent in the other? No, I don't think it does because it follows that he just is and isn't omnipotent. It's not natures that have power. It's the man who has power. Either he's all-powerful or he's not all-powerful. It's not natures that know things or don't know things. It's selves. It's thinkers. It's the man. If you say that Jesus is not omniscient in respect of his human nature, well, it follows that Jesus is not omniscient. If you say that he is omniscient with respect to his divine nature, then it follows that Jesus is omniscient. So to say that Jesus is omniscient with respect to his divine nature and not omniscient with respect to his human nature, it's only on the surface consistent. It really seems to be equivalent to just saying that he is and isn't omniscient. Well, that's just a contradiction. We know that that's false. Now, if you want to get fancy like a philosopher, there are other ways that you can try to qualify the two claims, um, but we won't go into all the agonies of that in this particular podcast. When we come back, a few final thoughts for this first half of my review. The main theme in this first half of my review has been the boldness, the courage involved in writing this book and thinking through such serious and wide-ranging disagreements as those between Islam and Christianity. Not only has he been bold enough to write the book, but he's been bold enough to put his thoughts out there, to put out his conversations with other people, put out his fears, his doubts, and some of what he's put out, I suggest, shows us that he needs to continue pursuing truth. If we have what looks for all the world like a contradiction, then we have a problem. Whatever is contradictory is false. Whatever strongly seems like it's a contradiction strongly seems like it's false. That seeming constitutes very strong evidence against a claim. And when we're interpreting the Bible, we try as hard as we can to avoid contradictory interpretations. That is, readings of a particular text on which that author turns out to be inconsistent with himself. Now, an author might be inconsistent with himself. Authors do this all the time. And if you're not committed, like so many American evangelicals are, to the inerrancy of the original biblical documents, then you're going to admit as a Christian theologian that sometimes one author maybe isn't consistent with himself or for that matter, that one biblical author contradicts another. But this isn't on any kind of fine point. This concerns the whole central focus of the New Testament, which is the man Jesus. Is he God? Is he God himself? Or is he fully divine in the sense of being omnipotent and omniscient, etc.? It's uncharitable, say, to the author of Mark, or to John, or Peter, or Paul, it's uncharitable to suppose that they are saying or implying that Jesus is God, oh, and also that he's not. 
We can't stop and rest with an apparently contradictory interpretation of a certain writer unless we just think that guy's confused. But as a Christian who believes that these are inspired books, we think that on central topics anyway, they've got to be self-consistent. Why? Because what they're saying about central topics is true. Now, why does he just put out these apparent contradictions and never solve them? Well, I don't know. I think he's a New Testament-focused kind of person, and so he may instinctively realize that the New Testament writers are not making a bunch of fancy distinctions about Jesus' two natures. They never do say things like, qua man, he is, is afraid and doubtful sometimes, uh, whereas qua God, he is never afraid. They never say things like, qua man, that is, insofar as he's a human, he's hungry, but qua divine, he's incapable of being hungry. And or maybe Mr. Qureshi suspects that some of these fancy moves don't work out. Well, we haven't gone through all those fancy moves. Sometimes those theories about Jesus' two natures seem unintelligible. Sometimes they seem like they're not really properly motivated by the sources. Sometimes they seem like they're just contradictory. But I honestly think that the solution lies in his hands. It's the New Testament. The New Testament understood without the thick, distorting glasses of Catholic interpretations of it. The main point he has right. When it comes to these things, truth has to be more important than family, more important than public embarrassment, the embarrassment of changing one's mind and taking back what one had previously said and argued. Truth is more important than the loyalty of friendships. And if to pursue certain truths is required to obey God, then sometimes the pursuit of truth is more important than your own personal safety. In our next episode, we'll discuss what Mr. Qureshi says about the Trinity in particular. This week's thinking music has been Devoured by the Comfort Zone by The Mind Orchestra. You can hear that track in its entirety at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. You'll also want to visit that blog post to see the extensive links that I've put there relating to topics discussed in this episode. For listening, we'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind. <laughs>